Welcome to the 66th episode of the Head Kick KO podcast. I'm your host, James Herrick, and today we are here to talk about UFC Fight Night, Alexander Volkov versus Jarzinho Rosenstrike. And after that, we are only going to talk about some recent fight announcements. We're not going to preview next week's card because we are going to do that a little bit later in the week. So um, if you're looking for that, that will be posted uh, probably on Thursday or Friday or Sunday or Saturday morning, depending on how that works out. But that is the plan. That way I have a little bit more time to do some more research on some big fights on the pay-per-view so I can hopefully give you a little bit more analysis. I think that's more beneficial for me and for you because the content will be better. And instead of one super long episode, it will also be in two that are not nearly as long. So I think that helps um, both me and you listening. So um, with that out there, let's go ahead and get right in to UFC Fight Night, Alexander Volkov versus Jarzinho Rosenstrike. So um, coming out early, these guys got into a couple of big exchanges and I mean, just off the first, the very first exchange was heavy exchange, but it was to the legs and body where Volkov, I believe it was Volkov who threw a couple really hard leg kicks at Jarzinho and Jarzinho came back with a really solid body kick and that kind of set the pace from there. Um, Volkov did a really good job of keeping the range throughout that first round and getting Jarzinho up against the fence and then he was throwing some really good teeps. Volkov, that's one of his best tool. What that is one of his best tools is throwing that teep, and he showed that again last night. And then from there, Jarzinho really threw some big hands, some flurries, and try and get a finish. He, I think, he landed one very good shot on Volkov. Volkov was able to stay composed, and then he returned right down the middle with some very good straights, and eventually landed a really really solid straight that um, hurt Jarzinho, and he landed a couple other big shots and a little bit of a questionable finish. But I don't want that to overshadow Volkov's performance because he did land a couple of really good shots that really hurt Jarzinho. And I think if Herb Dean would have let that go another 15 seconds, I think Jarzinho is just going to get hit with some ground-and-pound shots and put out anyways. And... I think that's probably the better outcome, right? I think it's better to wait a a second and and give the fighter getting the finish that opportunity to put a stamp on the finish, but you're also giving the fighter on the losing end the opportunity to recover. I think in this situation, considering Jorginho was initially wobbled and then knocked down, I really don't know that he was going to be able to come back from that. And even if he was, he was still going to be in a very bad spot as he was wobbled and Volkov was going to be on top of him. So I I really think Volkov wins this fight either way. But with that in mind, I think Herb should have let it go, should have, should have let um, Volkov throw a couple more strikes and, and see what happens, right? Give the fighter the opportunity to recover, give the fighter the opportunity to finish. Um, I usually lean the direction of letting it go a couple extra seconds but at the same time you can't let it go too long right we can't be seeing 50 unanswered strikes right we can't be seeing 30 seconds of someone getting 
absolutely demolished. But um, that one should have gone on a tad bit longer, right? And like I said, I think the outcome of the fight would not have changed. So I'm not going to hold that against Volkov. I'm not going to sit here and say these two need to rematch. I'm not going to do those things because I was equally impressed by Volkov and his performance. So I don't think there's any reason to um, run this one back or, or try and take anything away from Volkov because I just don't find that necessary. Um, with that being said, both guys did some things that I really liked in this fight. And we'll start with Jarzinho because for Jarzinho, I think the biggest thing that both the fans, the you know, the commentary team, the UFC, I think everybody wants him to be a little bit more active. And he came in today, or excuse me, not today, on Saturday, and was more active. He really, he really threw some big shots and tried to get Volkov out of there. And he landed a big shot. However, I think with that in mind, I think Jarzinho, what he did was really go straight for chaos, right? And... I'd like to see a little bit more controlled chaos, right? So I feel like this is a situation where everyone is saying, hey, Jarzinho, do this, do this, do this. And then he just does it without any thought process behind it, which I think it might be a little bit too crucial. I might be too critical uh, of Jarzinho Rosenstrike, but at the end of the day, going in there and throwing massive bombs against someone like Volkov can get you in trouble. I, I would have rather seen him try to get on the inside and just throw a couple of nice hooks, you know, or or land a couple of really strong jabs or straight rights, right? We don't have to go straight from, you know, standing on the outside, getting hit with the teep, right to I'm throwing f 14 overhands consecutively, thinking, oh, I hope one lands. You know, that I, I think... I think there was a line where he needed to bring the aggression to, and I think he overstepped it, right? And I, I, I'm not out on Jarzinho Rosenstrike yet just because he still has that knockout power, and he has a lot of talent. I think right now he's just working through some kinks, right? I didn't see anything in that fight that made me go, oh, no, Jarzinho Rosenstrike can't compete in this division. I didn't really see that. I, I, I saw someone that needed to make a couple of adjustments, right? He's not he's just not in the best form or, or best, you know, position that he's ever been in. I think he can find that. So I'm not out on him at all, but I think he does need to find, you know, that the the right aggression and the right speed to fight at. And I think once he finds those things he will make a lot of improvements because he is a good counter striker, because he does kick the legs well, because he does have absolutely massive knockout power from round one to round five. He has a lot of tools that I really like at heavyweight. I just think that, you know, maybe he was, maybe he initially received a little bit of a, a quick push because of how well he did in some of his early UFC bouts, getting, getting some knockdowns knockouts excuse me he he had a great entry into the UFC I mean looking at his he was 5-0 and coming into the UFC comes in second round knockout first round knockout first round knockout and then after and that last first round knockout came against Andre Arlovsky and then 
Um, he had that fight with Overeem where he knocks him out in the fifth round. Loses to Nganu. Beats JDS. Great win. Loses to Surreal Gan. Beats Augusto Sakai. Great win. And then drops to Blades and Volkov. So he has really been thrown right into the Wolves. Just looking at what he's done in the UFC. Jumping from Alan Crowder to Andre Arlovsky. Big jump. Jumping from Andre Arlovsky to Alistair Overeem. Big jump. Jumping from Overeem to Nganu. Massive jump. And and since that fight with Nganu, he hasn't fought, you know, you know, he's been in that range where he's fought some of the best fighters in the world in Surreal Gan and, and Curtis Blades. But even those guys he's beat, Junior Dos Santos and Augusto Sakai, those are both still two very good heavyweights. And when he got that win over JDS in 2020, you know, that was a good win. So he, you know, he's he really hasn't gotten any help from the UFC in terms of matchmaking and making things easy on him. So I think, you know, maybe a lower step in competition may do him some good to where he can kind of get back on track. And, you know, let's just jump right in there. Who who should Jarzinia Rosenstrike fight next? Um, I, I think it's tough to predict that just because I think there's a couple routes you could go. Um, realistically, you could say Chris Dowskis. And um, I'm not sure if Chris Dowskis is booked at the moment, but Chris Dowskis is someone who was also looked very high upon and then went out there and was unfortunately knocked out by Curtis Blades. So maybe that's an area you look to go to where you have two guys who have both showed a lot of promise but have some losses on their uh, resume and are coming off some losses. So I think that may be a decent route to go. Jarzinho Rosenstrike versus Chris Dowskis. Dowskis is um, unranked. I or excuse me, Dowskis is unbooked. I just double-checked on that. And then the other possible outcome would be the UFC saying, we're not really high on Jarzinho Rosenstrike anymore. And for Jarzinho, if they don't give him Chris Dowskis, you already have, I don't, I don't think they make that Marcin Tabora fight. Um, and then you have Sergey Pavlich, who's already booked. Shamil just got booked, and he already fought Augusto Sakai. So I think at that point they may say, hey, we haven't seen a lot from Jarzinho recently. Let's book him with number 13, Alexander Romanov, who is an up-and-comer and is a very bad stylistic matchup for Jarzinho Rosenstrike. So they may try and feed Jarzinho to him. So I think predicting Jarzinho's next fight really comes down to what does the UFC want to do with him. Do they want to feed him to someone younger that can get a win over someone like Jarzinho Rosenstrike to help propel them into the top 10 of that division? Or do they want to keep him in there with some good fighters like Chris Dowskis? So I really, I, I think this one really just depends on what you are expecting the UFC to do with Jarzinho Rosenstrike. But I think those are two very possible outcomes. Now, um, we kind of went out of order here, but now let's talk about Alexander Volkov. And I really don't have as much to say about Volkov just because this is a less complicated scenario um, than Jarzinho. But for Volkov, he he looked good again in this fight. And I don't think that Tom Aspinall fight was really his best performance. And then outside of that, his losses are to Surreal Gan where they went to a unanimous decision. Um, Surreal Gan, obviously, we've seen he is a tremendous fighter. 
And then prior to that, you have to go all the way back to 2020, where he was out-wrestled by Curtis Blades. That's a very bad stylistic matchup for him once again. And then if you want to go even further back, his last loss prior to that was in 2018, when Derek Lewis knocked him out with 11 seconds left. And if that fight went to a decision, Alexander Volkov was going to win that fight on the cards. So... At the end of the day here, Volkov is, you know, coming into this, I think people were a little low on Volkov, and I was too, right? I wasn't I wasn't giving Volkov his flowers per se, but if you look at the overall scheme of things, he is 1, 2, 3, 4, he is 5, and 3 in his last 8, right? That's not terrible. Um, if you extend that one more, that'll give you his loss to Lewis. But if you go back further than that, now you're looking at wins over Verdum, Struve, Nelson, um, and, and even more. So he really has only lost to the top tier of that division, um, with one of them being a, a Hail Mary last second KO win, which is still a, uh, still a, that's still a loss on his record. But then you're looking at top-tier talent like Aspinall and Gain and a really bad stylistic matchup against someone who's also a top-tier talent. So what I'm trying to say here is that I'm still very high on Alexander Volkov. Do I think he's going to be a champion? Probably not, but that's just because he has to go through some guys like Blades, who's a very bad matchup, um, or you know Tom Aspinall, who seemed to be a very bad matchup for him. So I'm not sure that Volkov is going to be um, a championship fighter, but I, I think he can still do damage in this heavyweight division for a long period of time. And now when it comes to booking Volkov, you're really, you know, in a bind here because of all the things I just listed. If you look at everyone, you know, all the names I mentioned, I mentioned Surreal Gan, I mentioned Curtis Blades, I mentioned Derek Lewis, and I mentioned Tom Aspinall. Those are four of the guys ranked ahead of him in this division. And the others are Stipe and Tai Tuivasa. So he really isn't in a great position because the four most recent fighters to beat him are all ranked ahead of him. And the two guys who are not, you know, um, the two guys that are not, you know, who he hasn't fought those guys, he's not going to get fight with, fights with those guys, right? He's not going to get that tied to Ivasa fight, and he's not going to get that Stipe fight. And so what do we do with Ty, or excuse me, with Alexander Volkov? I think after that performance, you don't move him down in the rankings. Cause if you, or excuse me, you don't have him fight someone lower in the rankings because you're still looking at someone like Christowskis or a Messine Tabora or, you know, someone like that. I think a name to keep an eye out on would be Sergey Pavlich and Derek Lewis. I think that that may be, you know, a fight that could potentially yield an opponent for Alexander Volkov. That fight can go a number of ways, right? If um, if Derek Lewis loses that fight, I'm not sure what they're going to do with him. Maybe Alexander Volkov could step in there and say, "Hey, I'm willing to fight." Derek Lewis, I know he just lost, but I really want to, you know, avenge, you know, a loss that I had that I feel like I was fighting well in that fight. Maybe he could get that fight. Um, if Pavlich goes out there and loses a three-round decision in a very close fight where people go, wow, Sergey is very good. He just wasn't able to beat Derek Lewis. 
if that happens, maybe he still is fighting up in the rankings and fight someone like Volkov. Um, if Pavlich wins a decision, maybe you give him Volkov. Um, I think if he, I think if Pavlich knocks out Derek Lewis, he's probably fighting someone a little bit higher in the rankings than Volkov. But that's just one fight to look out for. Other than that, I'm not really sure what direction they would want to go with Volkov. Maybe, I mean, even Marcin Tabora is someone that Volkov has beat recently. So there really aren't a lot of great options for Volkov. But at the same time, I think that really speaks to his his longevity and productivity in the heavyweight division to where you look at the rankings and he has fought almost half of the guys who are ranked at heavyweight. There just aren't a lot of guys that Alexander Volkov hasn't faced. And I think that is a testament to how good he is because a lot of fighters, if they were forced to go through the gauntlet that Volkov went up against, they would no longer be in the UFC because they would have not won any of those fights, right? Um, They would, you know, wouldn't be ranked anymore because they lost a lot of those fights. So I think that's really just a testament to how much work um, Alexander Volkov has done inside the UFC. He's been in the UFC since 2016. He has stayed active, um, and he's fought the best in the world. So I'm not sure where they go with Volkov, but I think he uh, will he will receive an opportunity to climb in the rankings, even if he has to you know take one more fight against someone that isn't a great matchup, um, or or isn't really ranked highly or viewed highly. Um, I I think eventually once we get some fights to play out and once we get some dust to settle. I think that uh, we will see a booking for for Alexander Volkov. Um, I'm just not sure that it is going to happen anytime soon. You know, like I said, we're going to have to wait to get some more clarity on what's going on in that division. And, you know, once we get some guys who, once we get that title active again, once we get John, once we figure out where John Jones stands, we can figure out where Stipe stands, and we can really start matching some guys up. And we should start moving things along at heavyweight, which will be a um, very big opportunity or should create some big opportunities, I should say, for Alexander Volkov. Now, let's move to our co-main event. And I think our co-main event has the biggest winner of UFC Fight Night Volkov versus Rosenstrike. I mean, just looking at that fight, Mozart Evelov versus Dan Ige. Um, Ozar Evelev looked tremendous. And I, I think the thing with Evelev is you really want to see how he does on the feet, right? Everybody knows that he is a tremendous grappler. Everybody knows it. And for him to come in and, and do a lot of work on the feet with Danny Gay, I think was really impressive. He showed a lot of tools that I really liked. He showed a lot of crisp and clean boxing that I really liked he landed that big flying knee early that really changed the course of that fight I really liked that and there were a handful of other big shots that he landed Um, uh, nothing crazy other than that flying knee it was a lot of you know oh that's a big right hand or or, you know that's a nice counter nothing too wild but a lot of good work and I don't think a lot of fighters that aren't named Dan Ige make it through that fight I mean, he is fighting at 145, so there are a lot of warriors in that division, right? You've got your Yair's, you've got your Caters, you've got a lot of tough, tough, you know, Max, Volkanovsky, 
Korean Zombie. You've got a, some of the most durable fighters in the UFC are in that division. So maybe he doesn't get a lot of finishes just considering who he's going to face in the future. But I, that's not a bad thing because he can go out there and do some good work on the feet. But also his grappling will lead him to a lot of the wins in the future. And if I were to poke a hole in his game, he needs to grapple more, right? I'm not sure that many fighters in the UFC really match up with him in the grappling department. And, you know, if you want to poke holes, maybe you can say, well, Bryce Mitchell would be able to go with him. You know, who knows if he ever fights Bryce Mitchell. But what I do know is he's going to have a grappling advantage in a large majority of the UFC fights for the rest of his career. I can tell you that almost certainly. So when you have that clear of an advantage, like the advantage he had against Dan Ige, there's no reason to stand around and strike with Dan Ige as much as he did. Go for the takedowns. Now, did he do good on the feet? Did he do good work on the feet? Yes, he did. I'm not I'm not trying to critique the actual work that he did standing with Ige because I was so impressed with it. But at the same time, look what he did on the ground to Dan Ige. That was also a lot of really good work. And, you know, there's less chance for Ige to win that fight fighting on the bottom than there is for him standing. Denige is a powerful guy and can change the course of that fight with one punch. There's no reason to take that risk, right? And, and in the future, if he's fighting someone like Josh Emmett or Cater there's no, or, or Arnold Allen or whoever, there's no reason to take that risk or throwing with those guys when you are that much better of a wrestler than them. Just go out there and out grapple them. Who cares if the fans don't like it? And, and if the fans don't like it, you know, that who cares, number one. But number two, it's not like he's a boring grappler. He throws ground and pound and he chases submissions. He's not boring on the ground, right? He doesn't lay and pray. He hunts for finishes on the ground. So, I mean, he even if you don't like grappling, he has one of the more exciting styles of grappling. So I'm not sure what's holding him back. Maybe he was just trying to prove a point in this fight because he did prove a point going out and striking with Dan Ige. What I'm saying is there's no reason to, right? You don't have to go do that. Just go out wrestling. Just go do that. Um, so I, I hope that's one thing he changes in the future. No reason to strike with somebody that you are head and shoulders a better grappler than. Even if you're doing well on the feet, there's, I mean, you, you, you know, even in the first round, he gets a takedown. Um, later in the round and, and rides that round out and does really good work on the ground. Then going into the second round, you already proved that you're better in both areas. Just go to the ground. Um, now, I may, I'm definitely being a little bit too harsh on him because he did look tremendous. So that's just me, you know, really wanting to see him succeed. I think that's his best route to success, even when he's winning on the feet. So um, that's just another thing to keep in mind. Now, what is next for Mosvar Ivalev? I, 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 I really think there's a number of ways that he can go, and in all this one's another one. Kind of depends on the UFC. How quick and how hard do we want to push Ivalev? I think this matchup was a really good test, where he's number thirteen and he fights number ten. He's going to be number ten in the rankings on um, Tuesday when the new rankings come out. So, what do we do with him? Uh, do we take the slow route and go number eight, Bryce Mitchell, or excuse me, number nine, Bryce Mitchell, or number eight, Yikichi Kadze? I'm not exactly sure that the Bryce Mitchell route is going to happen. That seems like the type of fight where you don't burn now. You let Bryce Mitchell and Evelev rise to the rankings together. 
um, that could be a potential championship bout. It could be a potential, you know, top five fight. There's no reason to burn that when they're sitting at eight and nine or nine and ten. You might as well wait, see how they progress, and, and because you don't want to burn that fight now. And then a year, two years down the line, you're going, oh man, they already fought. You know, that's one matchup we can't make. I mean, look at the discussion we just had about Volkov. We were struggling to book him because he's already fought so many guys in the top portion of that division. You know, three, three, two, one years, however many years down the line, there's no reason to burn that fight now. That's a good one to put in your back pocket. Um, Gigi Katze may be, you know, a similar situation where a lot of people are really high on Giga, but he did just lose his last fight, so maybe that would you know, give the UFC a little bit more reason to make that fight in comparison to a Bryce Mitchell fight. And, um, you know, that might make a little bit more sense. But I think the route that they're probably going to go is a like the loser of Calvin Cater versus Arnold Allen may stick off the page. Um, if someone like Sadiq Yusuf goes out there and gets a win, maybe they do Sadiq Yusuf and uh, Mozart Evelev. You know, it really kind of depends. If the Korean zombie loses another fight, maybe that's the direction they go. Um, Arnold Allen sitting there at six may not be a bad fight, but that's another one where these two guys seem like they're destined to both be top five fighters in the future. Are you burning that fight now? Um, Maybe it makes a little bit more sense since Arnold Allen's all the way up there at six. I think those are just all things to keep in mind when booking. So really, I think there are a lot of options for Evil Up, so I'm not really going to discuss this longer because you could make a case for him fighting pretty much, you know, Calvin Cater below, assuming Calvin Cater loses. If Cater loses, he, you know, that fight's not going to happen, and then the Josh Emmett fight becomes more likely. So um, Cater and Emmett, the loser of that, and then pretty much everyone ranked below Calvin Cater, you could make an argument for. Um, I think the Korean Zombie and Arnold Allen is a fight that seems like a lot of fun that I think the UFC may look to before they look to Arnold Allen, and, or excuse me, before they look to Arnold Allen and a Mosvari Vilev fight. So I think realistically, I think Kikichi Kadze may be the direction that they go, but who who am I to uh, you know tell you exactly what the UFC is going to do? Now, on the flip side of that, we have Danny Gay. Now, on the outside looking in, Danny Gay is in a tough spot, right? If you were to boil it down to as simply say, you know, he's lost four of the last five, you'd probably be not very high on Danny Gay. But when you get out the shovel and you dig into what Danny Gay has faced, you know, he's got a loss to Evelev, Josh Emmett, the Korean Zombie, and Kelvin Cater with one win with a... 22-second knockout against Gavin Tucker. And then prior to that, he was on a pretty good-sized win streak. That's six fights. So Dan Ige, the problem is he's been absolutely thrown to the wolves at 145 pounds. And he just hasn't held up as well as you'd like someone to. And Dan Ige is not particularly old. He's not particularly young. He's sitting at 30. 30 is, it can be old in the fight game, but it also can be young, kind of depending on how much damage you take. At the end of the day, Dan Ige is also in a position where I'm not exactly sure where the UFC is going to want to go with Dan Ige. 
He's going to slide in the rankings. I think it's possible that we just see Dan Ige against some, some Warriors at 145 and we just put him in fun fights. That may be the direction that they want to go. There are a lot of guys at 145 pounds who are incredibly exciting, but they're going to struggle to crack the top 10. I mean, look at Shane Burgos sitting at 14. I'm not sure that he beats Evalev, Bryce Mitchell, Giga Chikadze, Josh Emmett. But I will always respect Shane Burgos and his ability to go get in a war and really and, and really do a lot of damage in some fights. You know, look at someone like Edson Barbosa at 12, who was unable to go out there and beat Bryce Mitchell, who's the ninth-ranked fighter in the world. I just think that featherweight is so deep that we're going to see a lot of guys in similar situations to Dan Ige, where you're in the 10 to 15 range, or maybe you're not even ranked. Um, someone like Charles Jordan, where you go out there and you consistently put on great performances, but it's just unknown if you can crack into the top 10. Once again, that's not necessarily Danny Ige's fault because of how good the top 10 in this division are, right? Similar situation to lightweight where that top 10 is a hard division to crack. And I think that's the situation we're going to see with Danny Ige. And with that being said, I could see his next fight being anyone from someone like Sadiq Yusuf or Edson Barbosa, or maybe we see him fight someone unranked who's on the come up at 145 pounds it's really hard to put a finger on a name and say that's the direction they're going to go because I just don't think there's a clear answer to that question for Danny Gay unfortunately but um, I think that's just the way it is now those were all the ranked fights on the card so now we're going to go a little bit quicker through some of these other fights that I have you know some things to say on but not a lot to say um, Lucas Almeida versus Mike Trezano was a tremendous fight to watch, very entertaining, and eventually Lucas Almeida landed the shot that ended that one. And I think watching that fight, it was just once once you watch a couple minutes of that, it was like someone's gonna land and and end this, but who's it gonna be? And it ended up being Almeida. Kareen Silva got a really nice Darsh choke finish. She has great Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so I, I'm really not sure what her ceiling can be um, in the UFC because I do think, you know, she has some cardio problems potentially. But if you go out there and keep submitting people in the first and second round, you know, we're not going to have to worry about those issues. And I'm interested to see where the UFC goes with her. Um, but she is someone to keep her, keep your eye out because um, especially at flyweight, she has tremendous, tremendous submission skills and she's very good at utilizing them. I think there's a lot of fighters who have great Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu who go, okay, I'm going to lay in, lay on my back and chase submissions, and they end up losing three-round decisions. I don't necessarily see that out of Kareem Silva, so I think that is a very good um, pro and a very good thing I'd like to see out of someone early. So I will be keeping my eye on Kareem Silva, and I think she has a lot of potential. Now, Ode Osborne versus Zakur Adashev. Ode Osborne at the end of the day is in a similar situation where, man, you know, it, it's not grappling for Ode, but if he if he touches you early, he will absolutely knock you out, whether that be his fight with, I believe it was Jerome Rivera. I believe he knocked him out pretty badly. This fight with Adeshev, you know, he landed that shot. It was Jerome Rivera who he knocked out. Um, and then this one was... 
Adashev, he lands a really, really nice counter hook and absolutely puts Adashev out. And Ode probably is going to crack the rankings now. I'm not really too sure just because I, I really struggle to follow what they do at the flyweight rankings, you know. But that's a whole nother story. I could give you complete rants about um, the UFC flyweight division. But um, even if he's not cracking the rankings just quite yet, um, he's in a pretty good position to do so soon. And if he were to crack the, crack the rankings, I think Amir Albazi would probably be a good entry. He's sitting at number 13 in those rankings. Now, Alonzo Menafield versus Askar Mozarov. Um, well, let's just say this. Askar Mozarov looked a lot more like 19 and 12 than he did 27 and 9. For those who don't know, his topology rec- record was adjusted from 27 and 9 to 19 and 12 uh, over the course of fight week. And I think that 9 and 12 record is a lot more telling of his skills. He just simply wasn't good enough on the ground, and he got out down on the ground on the feet. Um, he's a he's a good striker and almost landed a couple really, really big strikes that I think could have put Menafield out. However, almost does not count in fighting. If you don't land it, then, well, sorry. Um, Alonzo Menafield was able to land some takedowns and advance to position, get to crucifix, and find himself a nice finish in round two. So I'm not particularly high on Eskar Mozarov after what I saw. Um, he was highly touted coming into this one, but I just didn't really see it. Um, I think if you can't defend, if you can't defend submissions, or excuse me, not sub, well even submissions. I don't know what his submission defense looks like, but if you can get taken down and really advanced into a crucifix. You're going to have a long day in the UFC, and he's fighting at light heavyweight where, you know, he's not the only guy at light heavyweight walking around with knockout potential. You know, at the top of that division, you've got some of the best knockout artists in the sport, and even the guys 10 through 15 and the guys outside the rankings, those guys can knock you out, and there are a good amount of grapplers that'd be able to take him down and really do bad things to him on the ground. So I'm not high on his potential in the UFC, and I think we pretty much saw what he can do. Now, on a more positive note, Karolina Kowalczewicz, I'm terrible at pronouncing her name as well, but she was able to go out and get a submission win against Felice Herrig. For those who don't know, Karolina was a highly touted prospect eventually fought for the belt, and then went on to lose a lot of fights in a row. And I think it was five, at least five in a row that she lost. So it's nice to see her go out there and get a win. Um, I, I'm going to keep it at that. Damon Jackson versus Daniel Argetta. I was very impressed with Argetta here. He gave, he put up some fight. I think he showed a lot of toughness, and he took this fight on short notice and a weight class up from what he usually fights at. He's usually a bantamweight, and he fought Damon Jackson, who is 21-4. and four. And I think at the end of the day, Dan Argetta had a lot stacked against him going into this one, but he showed a lot of heart and had a lot of success in that third round. 
and he had Damon Jackson busted up pretty good. I think he should continue to fight in the UFC. I think he at least deserves one or two more opportunities, and I think he will get those. I think when someone like Argetta is willing to step in on short notice, even if they didn't win the Ultimate Fighter to earn a contract, if you're willing to step in on short notice and put on that type of performance against a really good fighter, I think that you will continue uh, to receive UFC fights. See Andre Petrosky, who did not win the UFC Ultimate Fighter, but he did, you know, step in on short notice, and he has been, you know, hasn't been a world beater, but he's got a good win over Nick Maximov. So um, I think Argetta will will be on a similar route where now he took his UFC fight, the one that got him in, and now he's probably going to get at least one or two more fights where he's going to go down to 135, fight at a more natural weight class and size, and he's going to fight someone that a UFC debuter would fight, not someone like Damon Jackson. You know, they don't sign guys to go fight someone like Damon Jackson unless it's on short notice. So I think he's going to see a more realistic competitor in his more natural weight class in his next fight, which I think is something to keep an eye on. Tony Gravely, Tony Gravely had a very nice finish as well, so we'll keep that in there. And Aaron Blanchfield looks very good. Um, and she has a lot of potential. I know she only has 10 fights. She's going to be knocking on the doors of the rankings very soon and going out there and getting a submission victory via standing guillotine. I really like that. I think she's shown some very good abilities for that women's, I believe, flyweight or strawweight, flyweight, women's flyweight division. And she already has a win over Miranda Maverick, which is a very good win. And looking at those rankings, um, 10 to 15, you've got Joanne Wood, Jessica I, Cynthia Calvillo, Casey O'Neill, Macy Barber, Tracy Cortez. I don't know if she gets one of those fighters right away. I think it'd be more beneficial for the UFC to give her someone who is currently unranked and do so soon. I don't want to see Blanchfield sit on ice. I think another opponent against... Uh, you know, another opponent who is unranked, I think, would do her some good. And um, I think after that, she'll probably crack into the rankings. But don't be surprised if her next opponent is ranked. Now that we are done talking about UFC Fight Night, Alexander Volkov versus Jarzinho Rosenstrike, we are going to talk about five fight announcements. We've got one prospect. Um, one massive fight, and then a couple of in-betweeners that I think are notable to announce. And after that, we are going to get out of here. Now, like always, we are going to go by date, right? Not the biggest ones first. We're going to go by date. So July 2nd is the first fight that we have up, and that is Ian Gary versus Gabe Green. Now, Ian Gary is a prospect. Is he, you know, tremendous? A lot of people will say no. Um, is he likable? A lot of people would say no. However, a lot of people would also say yes to those questions. So I think right now the jury is still out for Ian Gary, and I think this is a decent decent level of competition. If you can beat Gabe Green in good fashion, that legitimizes your ability in the sport. If you can't beat Gabe Green, that kind of shows where you stand. So I think even if you're a fan or a hater, you have a, a reason to be interested in a Ian Gary fight. And um, this one 
is a good level of competition that could help either one, whether you're a hater or a fan. So I think it's notable. Um, Matt Chanel versus Samuj Jareen. Butchered his name as well. I do my best with some of these names, but I will never claim to be the greatest with names. July 16th, these two will fight. And they are both ranked. Let me get their exact rankings. Um, Matt Schnell is ninth, and Samud Jarin is 12th. These are both very good fighters. I was really impressed by both of their last fights. So I think this is a good level of competition. And the winner will have a good opportunity to fight guys ranked ahead of them. So I think this is a very good fight and good matchmaking by the UFC. Now. Um, on August 13th, we will see Alexa Grasso versus Vivian Arajuno. This is another one. Great matchmaking. I really have no complaints here. Arjuno and Grasso are two fighters I am very high on. And this is a good opportunity for both of them. When you're looking at this 125-pound division, we have talked about this at nauseum. Valentina Shevchenko has beaten... Fighters 1, 2, and 3 in that division. And she is currently booked to fight number 4. Alexa Grasso sits at 5. Viviane Arjuno sits at 7. That gives one of them a good opportunity to break into the top 4 and get a little bit closer to title contention. In number 6, Manon Fior is fighting number 1 in Caitlin Chukagian. So that's another opportunity for Fior and Chukagian to, um, well, more for Fior to break into that top 4. So I really like the direction the UFC is currently going at the women's 125-pound division. I think at the end of the day, if we can see some wins out of Grasso, Fior, or Arjuno, they may be able to go out there and fight with Shevchenko. And they should have a decent amount of time because Shevchenko is either going to lose to Talia Santos and they'll do a rematch, or she will beat Talia Santos and test the waters at 135, it seems. So the UFC is in no rush here, and they have laid out some very good groundwork to get Valentino a new, fresh face at 125 pounds, and they also have time to promote that fighter. So no complaints there. I really like what they're doing and how they are kind of changing the landscape of that division. You have no complaints from me from how that division has been booked so far. Now... Robert Whitaker versus Marvin Vittori is the biggest fight that we have to announce that will officially take place at UFC Paris September 3rd. This has been booked, then Whitaker got injured, and then this has been a rumor for a while now that they were going to fight on this date on this UFC Paris card, but now it is official. Once again, very good matchmaking. Both of these guys have lost to Israel Adesanya, and both of these guys are guys where... If you give Whitaker someone outside of the top five, or if you give Vittori someone outside of the top five, you're probably not looking at the most competitive fight because they are both great fighters who are just unable to become a champion. So you might as well give them um, a fight against one another. And they're going to Paris, so that, I believe, eases some of the travel problems for Vittori and Whitaker. Actually, I don't know if Vittori lives in Los. I think Vittori may live in the United States, so I'm not even sure that that may be wrong. Um, I know Whitaker does still live in Australia, but I, I guess I don't even know if Vittori lives in Italy or not still. Regardless, that's a good fight. Um, UFC Paris, someone of Italian origin at minimum, should be fun to have on that card. 
Now, the last fight we have to announce is Jelton Almeida will be fighting Shamil. And if you have ever heard me speak about Shamil on this podcast before, you know we don't even bother with the last name because I can't say it. So we just call him Shamil. And um, every time I tell you I can't say his last name, so you know exactly who I'm talking about. We're talking heavyweights. So Jelton Almeida will be moving back up to heavyweight. He was coming up at one, or excuse me, he was coming up at 205 pounds, was really struggling to get fights. So he eventually just said, ah, screw it, I'll fight Parker Porter. And he absolutely dominated that fight. And they said, all right, hey, have a ranked guy at uh, heavyweight. And he said, all right. And now he's fighting Shamil. So if Jelton Almeida can get himself a win against Shamil, he will be ranked at heavyweight, even though he was coming up at 205 pounds. I'm interested because I was really impressed with what he did against Parker Porter, but doing that against Shamil would be a big step up in competition. So if he can continue, if he can continue his trajectory, trajectory, um, it'll be interesting to see what he can do. And I think this fight with Shamil will be a good indicator of what he will be able to do at heavyweight or what he can't do at heavyweight, depending on how that fight goes. Either way, I'm interested to find out. And that is the last thing we have to talk about on today's episode of the Head Kick KO podcast. As always, I appreciate every single one of you for listening. If you made it this far, if you made it around 40, 45 minutes, depending on how the edit goes, um, I really appreciate it. So thank you for that. And if you've made it this long, you might as well like and subscribe on YouTube and go and follow some of the other social medias like Twitter and TikTok. Headkit KO Podcast, same profile picture, not, not too hard to find. And as always, thank you so much for watching this episode of the Headkit KO Podcast. We will be back later in the week. You know, you don't have to wait all the way to next week. We'll be back later this week. Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, depending on how the week goes. Probably Friday is my prediction. Um, but we, we will be back then to give an in-depth breakdown of UFC 275, I believe it is. But I know it is headlined by Glover Teixeira and Yuri Prohashka with a co-main of Valentina Shevchenko and Talia Santos. So, like I said, Thank you so much for watching this episode of the Headkit KO podcast. Goodbye.